The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We are now nearing the end of our of the fifth year of our study in the book of Matthew. And as we approach this text today, we come to the last week of Jesus' life, which is the single period that receives the most attention in the gospel accounts. Now, although Jesus lived 33 years on the earth, there is no attention that's paid to the first 30 years of his life, except for a few days that were around his birth. And then the narrative skips forward 12 years to one incident, one day in Jesus' life, and then another 18 years until Christ began his public ministry at the age of 30 years old. Now, the Gospels give a a good deal of space to the following three years of his ministry, and that's mostly what we've been preaching about for these past five years. But here, we come to the last eight days, starting at chapter 21, we come to the last eight days of Jesus' life, and this consumes fully one-third of the gospel accounts. Uh, One-fourth of Matthew is dedicated to this, one-third of Mark, one-fifth of Luke, and one-half of John are dedicated to these last eight days that Jesus lived on this earth. Now, why is that so important? Well, this is very important because these are days that were planned from the foundation of the world. It's the reason why that Christ came into the world, that he didn't come to be a model for us, and he didn't come to be an example for us. He didn't come to be a good teacher, although Jesus was all of those things. The single purpose for his life was that he might come here and to give his life as a sacrifice for the redemption of the sin of those that would believe in him. Now, all of the Old Testament builds up to this important event, the events of this last week, and every part of this is is detailed, and it comes down to the minutest detail. All of that is carefully orchestrated by the Godhead. So this is the final week And it begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem to the accolades, to the shouts of praises of the people, but it ends with the cruel crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. And I shouldn't say that it ends there because it does end with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 21, I would like you to stand one more time. And I know it's difficult getting up and down, but Matthew 21, let's stand as we read the word of God. Beginning in verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 11. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. 
And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we thank you for your word, for the reading of it today. I do ask, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to understanding this passage. May your Holy Spirit guide us as we study the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned in the beginning of the message, the last week of Jesus' life fills a significant part of the gospel accounts. Now, there are other highlights that are along the way, such as his birth, and Matthew was very careful to point out to us in the birth of Christ that he was destined to be a king. Later in this week, Pilate will ask him, are you a king? And Jesus replies to that question, to this end, I was born. Now, it's very significant that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem for this last time, and he would show himself that he was a king. This must be a memorable event in the history of Israel, an event like no other event in the history of the world. Now, I'd like you to notice, first of all today, in Jesus coming into Jerusalem, I want you to notice the purposeful planning of Jesus. The crowd's reaction to him was not a surprise. This is not something that he didn't anticipate. He wasn't caught off guard by it. But this was very carefully orchestrated by God as a means to raise the hatred. And pay attention to me. This is actually used as a means to raise the hatred of the Jewish people and the leaders who have fever pitch so that he would be finally thoroughly rejected by them. Now, I know that it doesn't look that way at first, but this was done in order to set the death of the cross into motion. Now, it certainly doesn't appear in the opening of the chapter that this could end in Jesus' death because he came into the city with those shouts, with the praises of the people. He came in with a declaration that this is the Messiah, that this is the King, this is the one who God has sent to deliver our people from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Now we can see how Jesus let that excitement build and how careful the planning of it was because Jesus did hear what he had not done so many times before. And all the other times that people wanted to take him and to make him a king and declare that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, he always quieted those people when they said it. He was trying to keep all of that a secret And that was because he didn't want them to take him prematurely. He didn't want them to raise the the hatred of the Jewish leaders then and the leaders of the Roman government. He didn't want that hatred against him then because they would take him prematurely before he'd finish his ministry on the earth. And so he told people to keep quiet about who he was. In the 8th chapter, when he came down from the hillside after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that the people were astonished at his teachings. 
It says there that they, he spoke with authority. They noticed the authority that he had. And they said, this is like nothing we've ever heard before. It's not like the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers and the rabbis that we have in the temples. Here is someone who speaks with authority. He's different. And the movement had already begun to make him a king right there. And so he came down from that hillside. And do you remember that the first person that he met was a leper? And that leper came to him and bowed before Christ. And Jesus healed him of that leprosy. But do you remember that Jesus said to him, Don't tell anybody about what I have done. In chapter 9, it was the healing of two blind men. And Jesus said to them, See that no man knows this. And then in the 12th chapter, he healed a great multitude of people from many different diseases. And he charged them, the Bible says, he charged them that they should not make him known. We come to the 16th chapter, and Peter made a great confession of Christ in that chapter. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Peter said that, he was speaking for all of the apostles... And Jesus said to these men that he chose to follow him, he said to them, tell no man that I am the Christ. Now, why was Jesus so emphatic about keeping his identity a secret? Well, as we know, it wasn't really all that secret because there were people that followed him everywhere that he went. He was always drawing a crowd because of the great miracles that he did. But he wasn't ready yet for people to make all the connections about him to proclaim him as the king. He wasn't ready for that hatred of the Jewish leaders to be raised to this level so that they would put him to death. But all of that changes when we come to chapter 21. Jesus is not trying to keep secrets any longer. The calculated time had arrived, and Jesus intended that there would be such a huge public outcry to make him a king that the Jewish and the Roman leaders would sit up and they would take notice and they would be determined to do something about it. Now we know that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were already boiling beneath the surface. And that's because of the many times that Jesus exposed them. He put them to shame and showed how that they were just hypocrites. He showed their blatant hypocrisy. And this public outcry for him to be the king would be the last straw so that the anger could be controlled no longer and then that would erupt like a pregnant volcano. Now their hatred of Jesus was so maddening that it wouldn't stop. They would not be satisfied until they saw Jesus literally stripped naked, hanging on a cross, all of his dignity taken away from him. And Jesus is the one who forced the issue to bring this to pass. He knows what's going on here. He's planned all of this so that he can get to the cross. Well, how could he make that happen in just eight days? How could he go from being the miracle worker with thousands of people that are following him and applauding him and he's, he hears the, the shouts of their praises? How could that turn around in eight days to crucify him, crucify him? Well, here's the answer to the decline from the popular to the pariah. This is how it all happens. Now we consider then how could Jesus make his entry so dynamic? Well... This should give you a little bit of the history of what happened just prior to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He had just performed one of the greatest miracles of all of his ministry. 
And that was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, the Jewish leaders didn't have any answer for many of his miracles, for any of them, really. They finally came to the place where they just said, well, he does these things by the power of Satan. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, this was something that they just didn't know what to do with this. What, what about this? I mean, that can't be by the power of Satan. Raising Lazarus from the dead defied all of their explanations. Lazarus was a living, breathing testimony of Jesus' power. Here was a man who had been dead for four days, so long dead that his body had begun to decompose. And, and this was important that that was pointed out in Scripture because it couldn't be said that Lazarus was sick and Lazarus fainted or that Lazarus was weak and mistakenly they put him into a tomb. Well, Lazarus had been there four days. The Bible says his body already began to stink. And Jesus stood before his tomb and he commanded him to come to life and for him to walk out of that grave. And so everybody knew that he'd done something that no human could possibly do. And so there were many that heard about that miracle and they came to see Jesus. But not only did they come to see Jesus, they came to see Lazarus. Everybody wanted to see a dead man walking. Now, I'm not talking about zombies here. I'm talking about a man who is alive again, truly alive. And they came to see him. In the book of John, it says, The people, therefore, that was with him, when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause, the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees hated Jesus so much that they wanted to kill Lazarus, too, after he had been raised. And how foolish would that be? Jesus could raise him from the dead as many times as they could kill him. I mean, they should have known that. But that was the miracle. That was the, the greatest miracle that Jesus did, perhaps. That happened just before Jesus came into Jerusalem. And then there were all of these other miracles that he did along the way to get there. And then there's another reason for this purposeful planning. Jesus could not enter into Jerusalem silently. He didn't want people to be quiet any longer. You see, it wouldn't do any good for Jesus to be taken to the cross and be just another obscure criminal like so many others, so many thousands of others that have been executed by the Romans on crosses. It wouldn't do any good for Jesus not to be noticed in all of this his death had to be something that would not easily be forgotten. He was about to die for the sins of the world, and all Jerusalem must know about it. They must be abuzz about it. And indeed they were, because the time that Jesus came was the Passover time. This is when God chose that this would happen. Thirty years later, the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa, declaring the death and the resurrection of Christ. You know what he said to Agrippa? He said, King, you know these things. You know about these things because these things were not done in a corner. In other words, there was a huge crowd in Jerusalem. And 30 years later, they were still talking about the death of Jesus. So Paul had to be able to point Agrippa back to that time and to know that he would, he would hear, he had heard about, he knew about the, the history of Jesus dying on the cross. So Jesus would no longer remain in obscurity. He was ready for the people to shout out that he was a king. He was ready for people to shout out that he was a king. 
Are you listening to me? Why is it that so many of us want to roll back the clock before that last week of Jesus' life and we are sitting here and we will not tell anybody that Jesus is the king? How many times have you heard Christians say and others say, oh, my faith is a private affair. We don't talk about faith. Those are one of the issues that you never talk about. You know how it is when you get around your family. They always say, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about religion. And most Christians stick especially to that second part, we don't talk about religion. We don't talk about our faith when in fact the faith is the most important thing that people could ever hear about. It's the most important thing in the world. People need to hear that Jesus is the king. And judging by 16 weeks of outreach training in our church, there must be many of you who don't think that we need to tell people that Jesus is the king. The attendance was not what it should have been. And there are people that are still saying, faith is a private thing. We don't talk about this. But this is exactly what Jesus has told you to do. You see, he gave you permission to do it. Not only did he give you permission to talk about him, he told you that this is what you must do. That you must tell people that he is the king, he's the savior. But I digress. That's not part of the message. That's all free. All of this was perfectly orchestrated. Now, Jesus was in control of this. He knew how to get to the cross in a very timely manner, in his timing. And so here it is. He whipped up the crowd to get the leaders incensed, and they would condemn him just as he said. That's his purposeful planning. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, the perfect knowledge of Jesus. Look, verse number 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, they sent, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Now, on display in these verses is the omniscience of a sovereign God. And we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus was perfectly clear about what would happen to him when he arrived in Jerusalem. In chapter 20, he described the exact order of the events. He said that the chief priests would try him. He said, there's going to be a trial. The chief priests will try me and they will condemn me. And he said that the Gentiles will agree with that and they would scourge him. And then in that place, Jesus gave for the first time, he revealed for the first time, even though he talked about his death many times, he revealed for the first time the specific manner of his death. He said that he would be crucified. Now those were details that only an omniscient God could know. A complete turnaround from the miracles and the praises to a mob that wanted to pulverize him. That was something that only the omniscient God could know. Now look what we see here. Before entering into the city, Jesus said to the disciples, two of the disciples, go into the city and you'll find a donkey tied up there and the donkey will have a young colt with her. And in Mark, it says that this young colt would be one that no one had ridden before. Now this is pretty significant, isn't it? Because the disciples went into Jerusalem and they found it just as Jesus said. 
Now, it's kind of peculiar, I think, strangely peculiar, that they would go into the city and they would find a donkey and a young colt that belonged to a stranger and they would just go up there and they would start untying them and they would just walk off with somebody's donkey and its colt. Now, in those days, people had businesses renting out donkeys for people that came into the city to visit. You know, they'd, they'd rent out donkeys to ride into the city. So these disciples went to rent a donkey. And what you do when you go to rent a donkey, you just don't go in there and just take one and just walk off with it. No more than you'd go to Enterprise Rental Car here in town and go behind the counter, grab a set of keys and go out to the parking lot, start up a car and drive off with it. You don't do that. You have to have permission to do that. And this is what these disciples did. Though they walked in there and they saw that donkey and the colt, just as Jesus said, and they went up there and they untied the man's donkey and they walked away with it. And Jesus said, if he tries to stop you, you just tell him that the master has need of him. Would that work? Well, it does if Jesus says it. It's going to work. Mark says that there were people that were watching what the disciples did, and they said, what do you think you're doing? Why are you untying the donkey? And the disciples said, the master has need of him. And they said, hold on a minute here. Now, who do you, who do you mean? Who's master? You know, some, they didn't say that. They didn't say that. They said, oh, just thought we'd ask. And so they walked off with the donkey. How does that happen? Now, do you think the disciples just sneaked in there and they looked around and they said, he told us to do this, we sure hope that it works. Well, no problem. Jesus said it would be this way. Now, what does that tell you? Jesus is the omniscient God. He knows everything. And you ought to remember that. Jesus knows what's going on with you. Now, for goodness sakes, if Jesus would know about one donkey and its colt, there in this massive city of Jerusalem with hundreds of animals there. He knew exactly where it would be among all the thousands. And the Bible says that God even knows about a sparrow that flies in the sky and when it falls, he knows exactly where it fell. God knows all of that. And if he knows all of that, don't you think that he knows about you? Do you think God doesn't care about what goes on in your life? You see, God knows what's happening with you. You won't fall asleep while I'm preaching this sermon, except God knows that you did. And you won't think a thought while I'm preaching this sermon, except that God will exactly read your mind and know exactly what those thoughts are. God is concerned. God knows all about you, and that's why you don't have to worry about what God's going to do with you if you know him. You don't have to worry about whether God's going to take care of you because that's what he's promised to do. He knows even about the little creatures, the birds and the animals. He knows all about that, and certainly he's concerned with the primary part of his creation, and that is man who he made to glorify him. Now, I want you to notice a third important point today, and that is the prophetic fulfillment of Scripture by Jesus. Verse 4, And this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. Well, the Bible says that this was done to fulfill the words of the prophet. Now, we notice in verse number 1 that Jesus made his way into the city, coming down from the Mount of Olives. 
Now, the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, that is 250 feet above the city of Jerusalem. It sits on the eastern side. So as you come down from Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives, you see it's overlooking the Temple Mount, actually, and you see the, the city of Jerusalem sprawled before you. And that mountain is a very significant mountain in Bible prophecy. It's the mountain where Jesus will set his feet when he comes again in power and glory. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says that he'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives and that mountain will split in half. Now, that's a prophecy that's still in the future. That hasn't been fulfilled. But here we're reading about a part of Zechariah's prophecy that has been fulfilled. 500 years before Jesus was crucified, Zechariah told about this little bitty donkey that would give Jesus a ride into Jerusalem. In Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So Jesus came riding in on a donkey. And that wouldn't have meant very much if it wasn't for this prophecy. Nobody would think very much about somebody riding into town on a donkey unless they had the knowledge of this scripture. And this is what they had on their minds. This scripture because they were students of Scripture, this came ringing back to their ears. They knew that the Messiah would bring salvation to Israel. And Jesus looked like that person that would fit the bill, and so they threw branches into his way, and they hailed him as a king as he came into the city. Well, is that prophecy significant? Well, it's just part of many that were perfectly fulfilled. A few weeks ago, we read in Psalm chapter 22 about the crucifixion. We were reading in the congregational reading, and the crucifixion was described there before the Romans were ever heard of. We read scripture in Isaiah about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And we read in Micah where it says that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Scriptures that are, and prophecies, perfectly fulfilled. Now, you wonder how the people say that the Bible is not true. Have you ever met people and you've talked to people who said, well, the Bible's not true. The Bible is filled with all kinds of errors and discrepancy. And you can always ask them, well, show me which ones that you're talking about. And usually they have no answer for that one. The Bible's full of errors. But the Bible is full of fulfilled prophecies, things that couldn't be true unless it's a supernatural book that's been given by God. God gave us fulfilled prophecies at this time so that we would know that the scriptures are true. But prophecy is given for another reason. It's not just for unbelievers. Fulfilled prophecy is also given for Christians. Now, he wants unbelievers to understand that the Bible is true, but he wants you as a Christian to understand that there are certain promises that he made that are yet to come true. Now, if God was perfectly accurate about what he said in the past when Christ came the first time, don't you think that he would be perfectly accurate about Christ coming the second time? I mean, can you expect that one day Christ will return to the earth and one day he will set his feet upon the Mount of Olives? Can you believe that that's actually true? Can you expect that he will come and he will begin a new kingdom on this earth that is established in truth and righteousness? Can you truly believe that when 
Jesus comes, that he will reward those that have been faithful to him, who have believed him and are faithful to him? Can you expect that that's true? Well, you can because you know that all the prophecies in the past that he said would come true have come true. And so we can expect as Christians that everything that he said that will happen in the future will also come true. So the donkey was there, the colt was there, and Jesus rode in just as Zacharias said. But all is not well, and Jesus knew that it wouldn't be. Fourthly, we notice the political expectations about Jesus. Now, this is a very peculiar thing again, that Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, rode in on a donkey. Now, how would you expect the greatest king that the world has ever seen, what kind of an entrance do you think that he would make into Jerusalem? Wouldn't you expect that he would sit on a majestic war horse? That it would be a great white steed, an impressive stallion, and there streaming behind him all the regalia that befits a powerful monarch? Isn't that what you would expect would happen? But Jesus rode in on a donkey. Just a little old thing, just a beast of burden, and there were a few old worn-out coats that were thrown on his back for him to sit on. Now, wouldn't the prophet who was going to get this right, I mean, looking back that 500 years to Zechariah, wouldn't we think that a prophet that was going to get this right about the greatest king who comes, wouldn't he say, Rejoice, Jerusalem! Your king comes riding in a mighty golden chariot of war! Wouldn't that be the thing that we would expect? But no, the prophet said a donkey, and that's the way he came. He rode in in humility, lowly, on the colt of a little old donkey. Now, he is the majestic king. He is the one who rules all kings. The psalmist said, All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Now, I can promise you this, that when Christ comes again, he will command respect. He'll come in a different way the next time. But this time, he came humbly. First, there was meekness. Jesus came in meekness, and one day he'll come with a majesty. Now, we look at this, how he came, but perhaps we don't recognize that there are some important factors about the way that he came. Jesus told the disciples to go and get this donkey. He requisitioned a donkey. And that's what kings do. When they need something, they just tell somebody, go get it for me. And people go get it for them. When the king comes, he says, go get this. And whoever has it has to give it up because the king has the authority to requisition what he wants. Now, as a Christian, do you really recognize who Jesus is. Now, sometimes people don't like this. I mean, they don't want to give up the stuff that they have, and so they resist all that they can, but they resist in futility. I mean, here is a man who gladly gave up what he had. He gave up his donkey. The king wanted it, so he's glad to give it. Do you think that way about King Jesus? Is that the way it is in your life? Do you want to hold on to your stuff? Or, and do you give to God grudgingly? You know what the Bible says? It says that God loves a cheerful giver. But I've seen people, when the offering time comes, they're the least cheerful people around. They hate to part with that tithe check. 
They sign it, they fill it out, and there's just a scowl on their face because they just don't like to give anything. God loves a cheerful giver. And I wonder sometimes if that's just not the way that we think about Jesus, that we're not willing to give him what he asks. And, and people give that tithe check this way as if they're never going to get anything back. Give like they're not going to get anything back. I know this much about Jesus. Now, he requisitioned this man's donkey, but I promise you this, I think that the man got the donkey back, but more important than that, he got an eternal reward in heaven because he gave that donkey gladly to Jesus. Then here's another point that we might miss. The king had the right to requisition the donkey, that's right, but notice that the Bible says that it's a colt that no one had ridden before. That's just a little detail, isn't it? Is that significant to tell us that this is a colt that no one had ever ridden before? Well, it actually is a significant detail because this is also the way kings are. You, you don't give the king something that somebody else has had. I mean, you don't give him second-hand things. Now, one of the things that the Bible talks about is how that, or we know this from history and the Bible mentions it in a way, and that is how that when a king would come to visit one of his provinces, that they would even do this, that they would build a completely new highway, one that no one's ever traveled before. They would build a new highway so the king would be the first one to come into town and travel that highway. And did you know that the scriptures refer to that in a spiritual way in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 3? And there it talks about how that a new highway is built for the king who is Jesus, and that highway was built for him by John the Baptist. A new highway is built for God. Now again, as a Christian, do you really recognize that Jesus is the king? Do you bring him only your used stuff? Do you bring him what's left over after you've paid the bills? And after you've taken your vacations and after you've met all of your needs, then do you decide what you're going to bring to Jesus? And I'll tell you this, God's never happy with leftovers. He deserves the very best. And think about this, Jesus arriving in Jerusalem during Passover. It's a highly significant time of the year. You know, the Israelites celebrated Passover every year and that commemorated that great event of how Israel left Egypt and how there was a lamb that was slain, a Passover lamb that was slain. That represented Jesus Christ. Now, here's one of the things that it said about the Passover lamb, that this Passover lamb had to be very intricately inspected from head to foot, top to bottom, all over. This lamb had to be without spot and without blemish. They had to put this lamb up for 14 days and inspect it to make sure it wasn't sick, that there's nothing wrong with it. And then they would bring it, present it to the priest, and the priest would say, that sacrifice, that lamb is good, we can sacrifice that. And that was the kind of sacrifice that God expected them to give. Now, this is actually what God did for us. Did you know that when he gave Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, that he gave his very best? The Bible says there was no spot in him. There is no blemish in him. There was no sin in him. He was the perfect son of God. And God gave him willingly for us. And I wonder why is it that so, Christ, so many Christians just say, well, I can't give God the same thing in like kind that he gave to me. Now, obviously, there's nothing that we can give that can compare to Jesus. 
but certainly we ought to try to give him the very best that we have. Give him the first fruits, the Bible says. Now, Jesus was the Lamb of God. He came into Jerusalem to be made of sacrifice. Jerusalem was filled with people. Normally, Jerusalem was a city in those days of about forty to 50,000 people. But when Passover time came, the city would swell in numbers. Up to two million people were there. 250,000 lambs were sacrificed at the time of Passover. So Jesus came in, riding down from the Mount of Olives. He's the Passover lamb. He's the true lamb of God. The crowd is swelling after him. There were the ones that had gathered along the route as he came through Perea and then to Jericho and then from Jericho to Jerusalem. All the people that he healed there, there were people that came because they wanted to see Lazarus and the miracle that was performed there. And the disciples came and the crowd was swelling up and the fever was growing And the curiosity seekers were all there. All of this is amassing into a swelling throng that accompanied Jesus into Jerusalem. So everything is heated up to this fever pitch and the news spread that Jesus is on his way. And you know what happens when you get a crowd like this together? There is a mob mentality that ensues. And so the crowd becomes very, very brave. Now you need to know that the people had been told that if Jesus was coming... Whatever Jesus did, his movements were to be reported to the chief priests and the scribes so they would know where Jesus is and what he was doing. But the people cared nothing for that right now. They weren't afraid of their religious leaders. The crowd is swelling up, the mob mentality is there, and they begin to proclaim Jesus as the king, and they don't care what religious leaders say. They're going to proclaim, and this is the one who is our Messiah. And so they're brave here, and they begin to shout out, Hosanna to the son of David! And that word Hosanna means save us. It means deliver us. And they're crying out for Jesus with his miraculous power to use that to deliver them from Rome. Make Rome go away. Destroy them and save us and give us our kingdom back. And so what did they want? They wanted a political savior. Hosanna, save us. That's not a cry for personal salvation. It's not a cry to be brought back to God. It's not a cry to come to him in repentance and restore the righteousness of the kingdom to them. They're not interested in that. Just like we talked in our Sunday school class this morning, that the world is not interested in the righteousness of God. And that's why you see America on a descending path and turning away from God. It's because people aren't interested in what God does. And so they weren't really interested that Christ would be the one who would save them from sins. They want salvation from Rome. And they don't even recognize the symbolism of what they'd done. They threw palm branches in his way. That's a symbol of peace. Jesus didn't come into town to overthrow anything. Jesus came to die. It's not a time to overthrow. He came to die, and that did not fit their expectations of what the Messiah would do. And when they found out that Jesus would do nothing like they thought that he would do, they turned on him. And those cries of Hosanna, save us, became save yourself from us. So the Hosannas were not because of the joy of salvation for their souls, it's joy of salvation from Rome. And they looked back to that prophecy in Zechariah, and just like they'd always done, they missed the scripture's intent. They missed that the king would come with justice and with salvation. 
And that meant the justice of their sins judged in him and his death on the cross to pay for those sins. And so the scene would quickly change. And that brings me to the last observation for today. Number five is the praise retracted from Jesus. And this is the inevitable outcome. They said, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Now I want you to look at that. It says the whole city was moved. And the language that is used here, in the original language, this is the same as saying that the whole city was shaken like with an earthquake. It's symbolic language. The shouts of the people were so loud, and and it was like the tremors of an earthquake echoing back off the walls of the city. There was a throbbing, and there was an intensity to it. And like an earthquake, it shook them. Now get the picture into your mind, what's happening here. The crowd was pressing as he came through the gate. The mob was pushing. People were trying to get a glimpse of him, and they were heated up, and the noise and all of that was going on. It's deafening at this time. And you can imagine how the religious leaders felt. Luke said that the Pharisees asked Jesus to rebuke his followers. Tell them not to say that you're the Messiah. But you know what Jesus said? He said, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So Jesus came into the city to all the shouts and the great noise and the fanfare. And we notice the question that is asked. The whole city is moved They see the uproar, people that are inside the city that may not have been aware of what was happening. They're standing back and they wonder, what's going on here? And they say, who is this? And then comes the reply. And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. There was one writer who said, I don't think there is anything more anticlimactic in all the word of God than that. Now, we don't realize how anticlimactic that it is until we think about it just a moment. Here is the Lord Jesus coming in upon the ass. People are shouting out, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The multitudes agitated speak out, Who is this? Well, you might expect them to say, Why, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is thy Lord. Bow down and worship him. But instead, what do we get? It's Jesus, the human name, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. He's just one of the long line of men who have attached to themselves the name prophet. Well, you can see from this, our Lord, no doubt, with some of the wetness of the tears that he shed on the Mount of Olives still upon his face, enters into the temple in a few moments. He's silent through all of this, and finally he turns and goes home late in the afternoon with hardly a word. It's obvious that the die was cast, the nation will not respond. And so this is the statement that came back. This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And when they said that, that was like throwing a wet blanket over everything that was going on. Would he be crowned a king? No. Because the crowd only saw him as a prophet from Nazareth, a mean little ghetto town in Galilee. 
Now, in John chapter 7, sometime before this, there was a debate about who Jesus was. There it says, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? They answered and said unto him, Art thou of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And so the crowds would quiet down. The uproar didn't last very long until there was another. The people reacted in a different way. The cheers turned to jeers, and the people would cry out, Crucify him, crucify him. And so soon he would be led into Pilate's judgment hall, and Pilate would ask the question, Are you a king? And you have to know that was a mocking question. How did Jesus get into town? Are you a king? He rode in on a donkey. Peasants were following him. Are you a king? Yeah, right, you're a king. Where is your chariot? Where is your army? Where are those dressed out in the robes of a king? Are you a king? No, you're not a king. And you know that the Bible says that if they had known who Jesus was, they never would have crucified the king of glory. They didn't know really who he was. So you see, folks, it was necessary for Jesus to come this way. Meekness and then majesty. He was not going to die obscurely in a corner. All must see this. But first, he had to get them to hail him as the king. He had to get the leader's attention. And that's what set up the frenzy. That's what caught their attention. And that's when they said, let's do something about it. And Jesus let the praises fade away. Now, the course was reversed, and he allowed them to put him to death. And that's the purpose. He came to die. And here at the beginning of this chapter, he sets that last week into motion when he could have avoided it. Matthew Henry said that he could have ridden into town on the wings of cherubs. He could have made this over in just a few minutes. He could have ended it in a good way. No pain, no suffering, no cross, no death. But that wasn't the Father's way, and that wasn't his way. This was decided before the foundation of the world, and Jesus was deliberate, always deliberate, about doing the divine will. Now, do you understand this? Jesus came to die for you. And I hope that you believe this. And I hope that one day you'll see him as the king coming in glory. The one who has come to save you and take you home to heaven rather than to be the one who comes to be your judge. And the difference in the way that you see him then is how you respond to what's being said right now. Is he just a prophet of Nazareth to you? Is that all that he is? Just a story in the Bible, just a person the Bible tells us about. Or do you say, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And do you understand that he died on the cross to save you from your sins? First, meekness, that's the cross. Then he'll come in majesty. And you must believe him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for these blessed words that we read in Scripture. 
We thank you for Jesus Christ who came into this world to save us from our sins. Lord, there's no way that I can expound the passage in a way that really fits the majesty of it and the meekness of it and all that's in between and really press upon people's hearts what this is all about. I know that your Holy Spirit has to do that. Lord, I pray that you would open up someone's heart to the gospel today, save someone today, cause people to think very, very sincerely upon what's been said. And for Christians to remember, we need to live and show that Jesus is our king. Every day of our life, he is our king. And we look for the blessed return. Help us today. Help us as we sing. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org